Welcome to the Language Mastery Show, a weekly podcast bringing you expert tips for getting fluent anywhere in the world. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. For show notes, visit languagemastery.com forward slash show. Today's podcast guest, Andrew Barr, speaks multiple languages and runs Real Fast Spanish, a popular website, podcast, and language school. But if you were to jump in a time machine and tell the 14-year-old version of Andrew what awaits him in the future, he would not have believed you. It turns out that despite doing quite well in other school subjects, Andrew failed French in secondary school. Upon hearing this news, his supportive father assured him, the bars don't do languages. We do maths and sciences. You will never have to speak a word of French again. While well-intentioned, this prediction ended up being a bit off the mark, since Andrew now speaks French on a regular basis, alongside Spanish, some Italian, and now a bit of Polish, too. Though he initially struggled in foreign languages, Andrew eventually cracked the code, and now teaches others how to do the same. In this conversation, he shares how a multilingual climb up Mount Kilimanjaro inspired him to learn languages, and led to befriending a French actress, the essential ingredients of effective language learning, and how to sound less like a gringo. All right, enjoy my conversation with Andrew Barr. All right, well, I'm very excited to chat with Andrew Barr again after we just did the math, and it's been seven years since we spoke on his podcast, so I'll definitely include a link in the show notes to go check that out. He's got a great podcast for Spanish learners, but as I think we're going to get into, he has started to dabble in some other languages too since we last spoke, so I'm excited to hear those stories. So, Andrew, for those who don't know who you are and what you do, give us a quick rundown of your language background and what you do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, um, it's wonderful to be chatting with you again. Like like you said, we, we spoke several years ago, and... Um, yeah, I really enjoyed our last conversation and obviously really excited to speak with you again today. So my origin story, I grew up in a small country town, like outside of one of the main cities in Australia. So Melbourne's the, the big city closest to where I grew up. And I grew up in a small country town, about 20,000 people. And I think like a lot of people, I had a bit of a false start with language learning. In the, the school where I grew up, the first school I went to is a small primary school. So basically the age of 10, we started with a little bit of Japanese um, so we just learned a few things there, the basics, you know, counting to 10 and, you know, like at that age, like it, it wasn't anything outside of school. It was just this sort of thing that we learned. So like basically all I can remember from that was basically counting from one to 10. You know, that's all that really stuck with me. Is that and standard then, to do Japanese in most schools or is that something unique to your school? So this is like primary school. Like it was just, it was this really simple thing. And it was like maybe half an hour a week for six months when I was 10, you know, and then like you get to dabble in a few different languages. So I think by the time I was 14, I'd, I'd been exposed to like tiny little bits of maybe three or four languages. So I think German, Indonesian, Japanese, and French. And so French was probably, I did that for three years, starting from, you know, the first three years of secondary school, which in Australia for me was ages 13 to 15. And it was one of the only subjects I failed in high school. So I was actually really good at high school. And, you know, the subjects I went on to study um, at university, I was an engineer. That's what I studied at university. And yeah, maths and science came really easily. Not, I, I wouldn't say easily, but they're the subjects that I, I did excel at. But mm-hmm. I failed French. And I remember this one day when I went home and I was like, I actually put a lot of pressure on myself. My, my parents were really supportive all through school. And if I did badly, it, it didn't matter that much. But I just remember the day I came home and I failed French. I said to my dad, I said, oh, I'm so sorry, dad. I like I failed this French, you know, I failed this subject. And I remember vividly what he said to me. He said, Andrew, the bars, we don't do languages. We do maths and science. So here's a promise. 
you will never have to speak a word of French again for the rest of your life. I remember that conversation vividly. <laughs> it's so ironic that now my entire career is dedicated to language learning and language teaching. Right. So um, and including yeah. French, which I know we'll get into later. But yeah, yeah, in, in, newer in, languages. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like so, yeah. Well, we can get into that a bit later. But yeah, the fact that my dad said you will never have to speak a word of French again, <laughs> and now I'm living in a French-speaking city. It's just it's it's very very ironic. And so then, I, like I did, I, I I put languages, you know in the back pocket. I just thought it wasn't me. It wasn't what I was supposed to do on this world, you know, and I thought it was something I was never going to be good at. And then fast forward sort of five years, I think when I was about 20, I was in university. And I think, you know, when you go from a small country town to a big city and you're at a university and you're meeting people from all over the world, then I started to get to meet people that spoke multiple languages. And one of my best friends from university, he speaks seven languages. So he was born in South Africa, Afrikaans, English, you know, and he'd done enough study to get his Afrikaans close to Dutch. His wife is, um, her family is Romanian. He speaks French. And how many am I up to? There's seven, right? I can't remember, but, but he's, yeah. he's really, really good with languages. Like hanging out with people like that sort of made me think, actually, you know what? Only speaking one language, it sort of is very limiting. Right. And um Set the he, he, bar a little higher for you, uh, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and like, this is kind of a long story. I'm going to try and shorten as much as possible. He went and lived in France for a few years. He was studying his French over there and uh, he was in a car accident, broke his hip, broke his arm. He fell off a, a bridge onto it, like a, a highway. Ooh. And it's amazing he lived, you know, he fell 10 meters um, and just broke a bunch of bones, had to relearn to walk again. And I mean, I've interviewed him on my podcast. The story's there. People can go and listen to it if they want to. Um, but he came back to Australia and he said to me, he said, Andrew, like after nine months of rehab, um, I feel like I have to prove to myself that I've overcome these injuries from this accident and I want to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. And so uh, he asked me if I wanted to go with him and I thought about it for about five seconds and said, yes, I would love to, you know, and then when, when we were over there, we met, you know, several people on the trip and we met a, uh, a German couple, an elderly couple that didn't speak a word of English. And we sat around this campfire while we were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. I don't think we were allowed to light fires, but we sort of sat around, you know, and we were, you know, having hot chocolate and things. And we were talking for about three hours through his translation. And, you know, I love to tell people, it's not, I don't know if it was the thin air or, or, or the conversation, but at that point, I just really decided I, I just cannot go the rest of my life without speaking another language. It was a real turning point for me at that moment where he was translating. I just thought what a skill that he has to connect with his people that can't speak our language. Then throughout that trip, we met multiple people. I mean, we, we met a French actress and, um, you know, we were like through his French, like we were able to make friends with her and we ended up hanging out with her for a couple of days. We like, we just made all of these friends along the way of right. this three weeks that we were there. Through languages. It was, it was all, right. it was essentially his connection to You're them right. through his language abilities, you know? And if I'm just this, you know, Aussie guy that only speaks one language, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been able to make those connections. So mm -hmm. I came back from that trip. I was highly motivated, but I think the scarring that I had from school with French, I didn't want to start with French. And I just thought I didn't want to take on a language, you know, potentially like Japanese or Mandarin or something like that. I, I wanted to take on a language that I thought wouldn't be too overwhelming. So in the end, I thought Spanish is a really practical language. We can use it in many countries. So that's the language I chose. And then, you know, I, I studied that for on my own, probably for about two years, I think. And then I went on my first trip to Spain. And then this might be like another experience a lot of people have is like while I was then committed to that stage and I was I was working on it on a regular basis, I remember that two weeks that I traveled around Spain where I would have constantly interactions where I would try to speak to people. I couldn't understand what was coming back at me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I remember I was coming in on the plane before I landed and I remember I had my, my grammar book in front of me and I felt like, all right, I'll just polish up this last little bit and then now I'm done. 
close the book. And then I arrive in Madrid and I think, okay, I've, I've done all the study now. Now this, this will go really well. And I remember my first interaction with the security guard at the airport. And I said, how do you get into the center of town? And this Spanish that came back at me, you know, and, and all I heard was the word taxi three times. And then he pointed and yeah, it was a bit of a mess. And <laughs> And reality then, uh, check. Yeah. A reality check. Yeah. The, the, the study that I had been doing to that point, you know, I, I'd, I'd learned words and phrases. I'd got a few bits and pieces, you know, I was able to ask basic questions and, and, you know, how do I get to the center of town and how much is this? And, you know, but again, I, I just, I was really, I was probably a, a one, a two, like if I'm going to put it in a European framework at that stage. So I had some things that I knew, but I just, to, to understand you know, fast Spanish, the the kind that a lot of natives are going to use, particularly people that haven't spent time learning languages themselves, they're not going to know to slow down or use easier vocabulary. You know, that security guard, he wasn't going to slow down for me, right? And mm-hmm. I think you need to probably, you know, I needed to get to more like B1, B2 to really be able to really understand those kind of interactions. And yeah, that trip was a real wake-up call. And I think there was a, definitely a moment when I was on the plane home where I was like, am I going to give up on this language learning again? You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, with what had happened in high school, the embarrassment that I had mm-hmm. having to tell my dad I failed. And now I've spent this two weeks in Spain. I feel like I'm failing again. Right. But, I, I, but I sort of, I don't know, something, maybe it was the, the, the experience in Africa. I just, I, I went and spoke to my friend, actually. I, I needed him for a little bit of advice, a little bit of inspiration because I just said, you know, I had this experience and I thought I was doing all the right things, but I just wasn't, you know. And he sort of said, you know, gave me a few pieces of advice. But one of the, one of the things that I really changed was, I went from learning by myself to learning with other people. And that meant Mm -hmm. working with a teacher and it meant doing language exchanges. So rather than myself and a book and a podcast in my room, you know, at home, I actually then started attending a local Spanish school and I started doing meetups and language exchanges. And I think over the next six to nine months, I went from that very awkward beginner type to, to actually very conversationally comfortable. Right. And from that point, I, I really felt like Spanish opened up to me and came really enjoyable. So on a high level, you switched from an input only approach to then actually doing output and actually practicing the very skill you wanted to get good at, which I mean, I'm sure in hindsight to you and other language learners that have gone through this process, it's very obvious like, oh, I want to get good at speaking and understanding other people speaking to me. I guess I have to practice speaking. Yeah. Right. It's very obvious now, but I think to a lot of learners, do exactly what you did the first time around, which is, you know, nose in a book, trying to learn all the grammar, thinking that that somehow is going to magically translate to (laughs) conversational ability. And it just doesn't. And and I don't think it means that that work is wasted or shouldn't be done. I think we just have to set realistic expectations about where we're at and what we need to do. I'll add one thing to that Mm -hmm. as well, because I I know a lot of people, like, it's really interesting. I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about language learning methodology and this debate between input and output. But I would say, looking back in hindsight, I was doing low quality input, Mm. right? Like I actually say that the type of input that I was doing at that stage wasn't as good as it could have been, Mm. you know? So I, I often like to talk about, you know, the quality of our practice sessions. And it's kind of like when I was sitting down and looking at that book, was I doing it in a way that was advantageous that I was able to retain the vocabulary or was I just sort of skimming, thinking in my own mind, oh yeah, I know that, but actually it wasn't really sticking the way, the way I sort of know now, you know, Mm. it's kind of like if I'm going to work through a book, whether it's grammar or whether it's just you know, a, a fictional story, you know, I now sort of know a lot more about how to retain vocabulary, you know, through experience. And I think mm. no, those first two years is probably, yes, it was input only, and it was probably low quality input. Mm. That, that's how I would reflect on it. So on that topic, yeah, let's dive into that as a, a good jump off point here for methodology. So what do you do now? So I know you in our pre-talk before we started recording, I know since we last chatted, you've now started French, 
Yes. I think just most recently you said you started getting into Polish, which is like, yes. what, two weeks in, brand, brand new. Yes. So so what are you going to do now? Like with Polish, for example, what is your journey to look like from now until, let's say, a year from now? What what are you going to be doing in that language? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So I think first and foremost, I know from experience that motivation is massive. Motivation is really important. And, you know, when you find a new hobby, something new, and you like you get really excited with it. And I'm sort of like, like I said to you, I mean, yeah, even before we hit, hit record, like I sort of said, I'm, I'm almost really excited about getting into Polish as kind of a new language. And, right. It's a um, shiny it new just, nickel. It's, it's, like, it's exactly. Yeah. It's, it's this shiny new thing. And I'm kind of like, oh, well, you know, Spanish is this thing I've been doing for years. French is this thing I've been doing for years. And now mm-hmm. I've got this new thing that I can, a new toy that I can play with for a while. And I'm all of a sudden, I'm learning new sounds that don't exist mm-hmm. in the language that I already know and the new vocabulary. And oh, how do you pronounce that? And oh, wow, what's this new consonant? What's this new vowel? And, you know, all that sort of thing. And so it's going to be very exciting. And I know in my head, that it's going to get a little bit hard at some point. You know what I mean? There's right. going to be a part in the journey where I'm going to like lose focus, lose motivation. Yep. And so if I'm going to be really successful, I need to put something in place that's going to keep me as consistent as possible. And I know mm-hmm. like, I think, I think like consistency should always be like the gold standard, right. Of like what we should all be aiming for, but like life does get in the way, you know, and if I've got three or four other languages that I'm learning and I've also got, you know, real fast Spanish, the business and, you know, even just, going to the gym and spending time with my wife and, you know, spending time with friends and, you know, all of the things that we're trying to balance. I, I just think like already it's, it's, it's going to be potentially um, intimidating. But so one thing I think if I'm going to have success with this thing is I've got to have something in place that will keep me as consistent as possible. And that mm-hmm. might be just a couple of times a week, as opposed to, I don't want to do, you know, 48 hours of just intense research and study for like a week and then not do anything for six months or, or right. three months or something like that. So um, in the past, this, the thing that's been really successful for me for that it has been a thing like meeting with other people. That sort of, mm-hmm. that's what I said was when I really started to get better quickly with my Spanish, it was kind of like I was doing a class on a weekly basis and I was meeting a language exchange on a weekly basis. And so I think if I just put them that in place first, so it's like, okay, every Thursday, at 7 p.m., I'm going to do like an italki lesson or I'm mm-hmm. going to do a language exchange or I'm going to potentially attend something that just really keeps me accountable because I know, I don't know if everybody's like this. I don't know if you feel like this, John, but I can sometimes be lazy, you know, or just not even yeah. lazy, but just distracted, you know, with many right. other the commitments, you know. And so it's kind of like if there's something that I want to get good at and it, it, it kind of is because I don't, I can't remember what I told you my motivation is because my grandfather was born and raised in Poland. We have family from there mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's, it's an important part of our heritage. And I was sort of, I was speaking to my uncle like a week and a half ago, and this is really where the Genesis sort of started is, you know, we were talking about our family history going back six generations and, you know, I'm sort of looking at all of our history and the Polish names and the stories and, and, and the things that we've got on our on our family history. And my last name, Bar, B-A-R-R-R, got anglicized um, during the Second World War. And it used to be Barysk, which is like B-A-R-S-Z-C-Z, right? Which is a Polish word, which means beetroot soup. So if you go to uh-huh. Poland, right? If you go to Poland and you ever go into like a restaurant somewhere in Warsaw or Krakow or Ratzlaw or somewhere like that, you go into a restaurant, like one of the items on the menu might be able to find this traditional Polish beetroot soup which is where my old last name came from. And it was just things like that that, that really got me thinking, oh, I kind of want to learn this language now. And it's, mm-hmm. it's also my other three languages are um, Latin-based. They're Romance languages, right? Mm-hmm. And so it'd be nice to learn something, you know, Slavic language or Western right. Slavic language. And I just thought it'd be nice to sort of test my own learn- language learning process and skills and apply it to something that may be a little bit harder. Well, again, hard is a, a word that we could potentially talk about, but something Indeed. that 
what's going to challenge me in a new way. So yeah, that's- at least different. You're not going to have as <laughs> you know as many of the cognates and the. I mean, there are some still, right? But absolutely, but as far yeah, as I know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think, you think about the word like like words like information and discussion and you know organization, you know, in French, Spanish, and Italian, which are the other languages I know reasonably well, they like you can basically just slightly change the pronunciation. You've got all the words again, right? You, know? so, you get a lot for free, as far as yes. I can tell. So, so kind of finishing the answer to the question. So, I'll try to have something in place that'll keep me consistent, um, and then after that, I'm going to focus on probably I'm going to really focus a period of time on pronunciation. I really want to get mm-hmm. the sounds right first. Uh, in, in my opinion, I think. We all want to start there because I've, I've sort of seen this with many of our students is kind of like when you get into like an like an output strategy early, if you haven't quite got the sounds right, it's kind of one of those things that we can really develop a habit that is hard to undo. And I've seen that with my own Spanish. It's kind of like, you know, I had sounds, pronunciation errors that I was potentially making for a very long time, you know, maybe years. And then to yeah. undo that can take months and years as well. Hard. So yeah, exactly. So, so like with the Polish, I'll be like, okay, how do I get these sounds as good as I can possibly get them early? And I may even put like learning vocabulary and grammar to the side mm-hmm. for the first little bit, just so I can purely focus as much as I can on sounds. And I might take a hundred words and work with the tutor and say, how do we get these as accurately as I can make them and maybe record myself a little bit, play a recording versus a native, and, and just go back and forth for a while so I can get those sounds as accurately as I can. And then after that, then I'll dive into, you know, vocabulary and grammar and, and really sort of build through, you know, high frequency vocabulary. And I'll be using, yeah, all sorts of combinations of, of probably input and output. I like YouTube as a, as, as a resource. Mm-hmm. That will be somewhere I might, I might find maybe a teacher that, you know, for beginners that will teach the basics and maybe compare English to Polish, you know, I might find something like that. And I might also find a channel where um, it's just a Polish channel for Polish people. So it's, so it's native content for native content. And I might right. use a combi- combination of those things as well, again, build the vocabulary and grammar. And then, yeah, some sort of output practice on a regular basis as well. So I can actually speak it and try to put into application what I'm, what I'm learning. Sounds like a very healthy uh, language learning diet to me. <laughs> uh, and there's a few things I want to underscore again for those listening. So a lot of there's a lot of a uh, wisdom in what you've just said here. I think that you've obviously learned, you know, the hard way of going through all these languages over many years. The structure, having that weekly tutoring session, I think is so important because if it's not on the calendar, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, you use the word lazy. I think it's just a matter of just being human. We always have more things to do than we have time in the day. And so if something is not blocked out in your calendar, it's just so easy to go, okay, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. I'm not going to do it today. But if it's already there, it's booked, you've paid the money, you have that extra yes. little bit of motivation to show up. Yes. And since you're going to be talking to this native speaker, you are going to be that much more motivated during the week between the sessions to put in time in the language because you don't want to show up and just be completely empty. Yeah, 100%. So I, I want to go back a little bit earlier when you first started learning Spanish in Spain. And you kind of had those experiences. And then you called your friend, the polyglot friend who spoke the seven mm. languages. He gave you the advice to talk with tutors and actually communicate with people. What else did he tell you? Were there other tips or, or things that he, he told you that changed the trajectory of your learning journey? Yeah, yeah. He, he has this one tip, um, and he, uh, which, which I really love, which is um, when he's learning new words, he, he often carries a notebook around. He leaves it in his top pocket with a pen. And um, even to this day, even with iPhones and technology, you know, so he, he'd been learning his language his whole life before the iPhone was invented, you know, but he still does it to this day. He'll carry a, a pocketbook around. And when he learns a new word, he will write it down and then he will try to find an opportunity to use that word in the next 24 hours. So it was just, mm. it's just that simple. It's kind of like mm-hmm. learn a word, try to use it as quickly as possible. And just that one tiny little tip, it's, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. It's kind of mm-hmm. like every time you learn a new word, try to use it straight away rather than think, okay, 
that's an interesting new word. Look at it once and think, I think something that I'm guilty of, and I know I've heard students say this as well, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I'll remember that. Almost like trusting our brains to think, oh yeah, yeah, that, that will stick. No, but I think actually having a, his process of saying, no, I won't remember that. <laughs> you know, It's almost like he's, he's thinking ahead of time saying, I'm probably not going to remember this unless I write it down and I try to use it in a 24-hour period. And of course, it's, it's not perfect, but just that, that simple discipline mm-hmm. of learning something new, capturing it, and then trying to apply it really quickly um, that was really valuable. And I've, I've been carrying notebooks for years, um, you know, since that advice probably. And I've got notebooks going back 15 years where I've had conversations with Spanish natives and written all the words down. And I can even remember, oh, I was having that conversation with my friend from, you know, Barcelona and she taught me these five words. I actually know where to go and find that. Right. You probably remember you know? what part of the notebook and what part of the page it's in because the, the visual component of that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so that was, that was another piece of advice that he gave me that. I, I think that's really valuable. smart. I want to emphasize the analog component of this because I think that that shouldn't be underestimated how important that is because so often you said people have iPhones now. When you pull a, a device and you're trying to type in the words into your phone, there's something about that where it creates, I think, a distance. It creates a, a block between you and the person you're with. And they also don't know if you're checking Facebook or something else. They don't yeah, know that yeah. you're... No, I'm actually in my dictionary app. Trust me. You know, <laughs> they don't, they don't know. And it, it just feels a little bit, I don't know. Rude's probably not the right word, but there's something about just a piece of paper. They see you writing the word down and it, it just it doesn't well, feel I, as disruptive to the well, conversation. I, I, and I think everybody has this experience right right now, you know, since since the iPhone, this since these smartphones were invented, is like I'm sure you've had a conversation with family, friends, you know, and you're speaking to them and their their heads in the phone, you know, yeah. and on some level you feel like are they actually listening to me or not? And you, you're just not quite sure. And so, um, yeah, I, I, but there's some, that doesn't happen with paper and pen. I, okay. I, I, so even, even to this day, even if I'm doing a language exchange, you know, and I'm going to, I'm planning on catching up with a friend of mine um, tomorrow morning. And, um, you know, if, if we're going to actually do some, some language practice, you know, I'll, I'll like to take the, the paper and pen, the booklet and, yeah. and my notepad, and I'll sit there and we'll sit on a park bench or something and have a conversation. And I will, as she's speaking, I will be writing things down. And yeah, it doesn't give that same feeling of this person's distracted because I'm writing down exactly what she's saying, you know, and I think that that can still, it still really feels like we're really engaged, even, even though I am doing a multitasking, you know, as opposed right. to the phone where, where, like you say, you could be on Instagram or something and you're just, you're just not hundred percent certain what that person's doing. And to your point earlier too, about the memory of what you were doing at that time, there's just there's something about the kinesthetic spatial part of a, a physical notebook or something that it just it does really help, I think, with memory. Now, it's not foolproof. Just writing something down, obviously, is not enough in and of itself, which to your no. friend's advice to use it in 24 hours, I think, add those two together. And yeah, you have, you have a pretty powerful strategy there. One thing I also want to touch on, when you were learning French in school, in your words, you failed. Then you were trying to learn Spanish later, and you kind of ran into a similar frustration. You managed to push through those limiting stories and, and self-talk. At that time, did you have a story that maybe I am just not good at languages? Maybe there's something about me that's, you know, maybe I'm just an engineer and I'm I, uh, languages just aren't for me. What what was the shift that what what finally changed that for you? Was it seeing your friend actually doing it, or was it you yourself later reaching some level of fluency where you finally said, "Okay, actually, I can do this." There's nothing yeah. wrong with me. Maybe it's just my method was the problem. Yeah, I I, I definitely think that. Yeah, it it had to come in a moment of fluency. I, I definitely think there would have been a conversation. I, I mean. Because the conversation, my conversation ability developed, what I would say, felt slow, you know, over 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 years and months. Um, but but there were definitely moments where I would have say, and I often recommend this goal to students. Is sometimes say like, let's not aim for fluency, but let's aim to have a conversation for ten minutes without switching back to English. You know, it can be broken, it can be ugly, it can be choppy. 
you know, but like even just doing that, like having a 10 minute conversation in your target language, for me, at least even with mistakes and, and broken, like I can walk away from that and think, wow, that was really an exciting and a cool moment. You know, I was able to ask questions. I was able to get the responses. I, I was able to understand maybe 80, 90% of what was coming back at me. And then I was able to respond to that, you know, and that sort of moment probably is what sort of taught me that I was capable of doing this thing. But up until that point, I definitely had lots of moments of doubt because like, like I said, I, it was the only subject in school that I failed. I got an F for that. And yeah, it was just, it was a non-compulsory elective for the upper high upper years of high school. So I just didn't, I just stayed away from languages, you know, and then even those, those, those moments in Spain where again, I just thought, you know, maybe I'm not born for this. Maybe I'm, I'm not good at languages, but I think in high, if I was to give advice to my younger self, I would probably would have said to myself, if you have got the tools to speak your first language, you've got the tools to speak your second language. I would have liked to have said that to my 14-year-old self, you know, yeah. and just said, you know, you can speak English, you, you've got a mouth, you've got ears, right. they work, right. you know, and that's kind of all you need in your second language. And probably the missing gap was just a bit of consistency and a bit of discipline. That was probably, mm-hmm. you know, and um, methodology, I mean, we can probably have a conversation about methodology. I mean, we sort of already have a bit, but like I often just think that just the consistency and the and the motivation is is the critical component. I think mm-hmm. any method can work on some level, right? And even the method I was using in school, I think could have worked if I'd had the discipline, the consistency um, to use it, and and just just practice going through the words that the teacher was giving us instead of not really paying attention or you know what I mean? Or, or thinking that I was paying attention where I really wasn't, you know, those sorts of things. Right. And I think there is a element too of treating languages as what they really are. Cause I think often it's considered it's a subject, right. In school, it's like I yeah, have yeah. maths, you say, you know, this hour, and then I've got this, this hour, and then I've you know, French at this hour, but it really isn't a school subject. I think it, it's a kind of a, a very different beast. And <laughs> if anything, I think it's more like physical education or sports or something, it's more similar to that in many ways than it is to geography or history or math or one of these other things. And I think if we don't give it that respect for what kind of beast it is, it's tough to get the kind of practice that you're going to need to actually be good at it. Yeah. For me, music, music is, is another one that sort of reminds me a little bit of language right. learning, you know, cause I, I sometimes think like the analogy of, you know, you're trying to learn a song on a guitar or on a piano or something like that. And it's kind of like, yeah, you, you can't just watch someone else play the song you know, and then you just mm-hmm. do it, you know, you, you sort of have to practice the finger positions, you have to practice the timing and the rhythm and, and moving the hands around to, to produce the music that you're trying to produce. And I think, you know, language is, you know, it's done with the mouth, right? But like pronunciation, um, mm-hmm. and then using it in rhythm and in time, and, you know, producing it in, in, a, in a coordinated way. Um, even if you think about like something like, I don't know, impromptu jazz or something like that, there are still rules to to jazz, even though someone's might be making it up on the spot. And to me, that remind, reminds me a lot of languages. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. So now that you have, a f- is this, so Polish, is that your fifth or your fourth language? Uh, you? Fifth. That's fifth. I know it's kind of well, if, 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 count. If, 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 we could, if we include English. So first. That's right. Okay. That's the one I was so, thinking now. So I'm probably, I'm probably, I'm an eight, I'm still only eight with Italian. So I don't even know like I'm allowed to count that, but I'm, I, I can still functionally I do it. But yeah. You I spent can, I can time with the language enough to, you know, use it a little bit. And yeah, I think that counts. Yeah. And, and I, I can kind of, I can get my point across with someone that doesn't speak English in Italy. So it's probably A, a level um, Italian, B level French, C level Spanish. And then so Portuguese will be the fifth if English is my first. Oh, Portuguese. I don't know. What did I say? What did I say? Polish. I mean, Polish. I mean, Polish. Oh, okay. I was, I no, Portuguese. Oh, no, no, Portuguese too. Yeah. No, no, that yeah. was a slip. <laughs> that would be with your Spanish and your Italian. Then that's. Yeah. yeah. No, Polish. 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 Very cool. So. <laughs> 
as you have gone through these five languages, um, is there anything you have changed your mind about um, about how languages? And uh, I should also say, I mean, through real fast Spanish, teaching other people how to learn. Um, what have you? What are some like sacred cows, perhaps, that you used to have? Like, oh, you have to do this, this, and this in a language. But now that you've had all this exposure and time working with other learners, are there things you've changed course on, you know, philosophies or methods that you've abandoned or taken on? Yeah. So, I mean, probably the thing that I, I feel like I have changed my mind on, and we sort of already touched on it a little bit, is just this idea of, of, of the importance of methodology. And, um, you know, I, I sort of want to tell the story of a bit of an experience I've had here because, um, you know, where I'm living here, I'm living in a French speaking um, part of Europe and it's a very international city and we're surrounded by um, like of all my friendship group, you know, I can only think of one or two that only speak one, two languages or less, you know, so most of the people I'm surrounded by speak three or four languages and, you know, they've all got their own experience of where they're coming from, but I've got a friend from Moldova and um, her English is phenomenal and she learned it in school. And I remember she said that in, you know, when she was learning English in school, it was, you know, the, the teacher would put the, um, like the Romanian word on one side, or the Romanian phrase on one side of the board and then the English phrase on the other. It was Romanian, English, Romanian, English, Romanian, and it would go back and forth. And then she came here and she wanted to learn French. And so she went into a French classroom where they had this rule, which is like no, immersion only with no, no other, you know, mm-hmm. strictly no other languages. And she got extremely frustrated by that. Mm. Right. And um, she said she had to do more. She felt like she had to do more work at home so she could handle the immersive classroom than, if, than she did when she was um, learning English back, back at home in Moldova. And then I've got other friends that have basically almost told that story in reverse. Right. Where, they've, where they've said, you know, I, I, I tried to learn in a classroom where they had they were using two languages and, you know, all of a sudden I went into an immersive environment and it made all the difference, mm-hmm. you know. And so for me, when I, when I see different people having those different experiences, the thing that I think matters most is not necessarily the methodology, but the student's relationship to yeah. that methodology. Yes. It's, it's how they feel about it. Yes. You know, and my, my friend walking into that immersive environment, she did not like it. You know, she wasn't comfortable. She was frustrated. And so learning in that environment was very difficult for her. And then my other friend that maybe had, had, you know, had this kind of narrative that we've sort of touched on quite a lot is like a failure in high school. And so I think if someone has had a failure in high school, they may think about the methodology that was used in that classroom yeah. in a negative way. Yes. And therefore think that there's, it's critical that we switch to a different methodology to have success later in life. So I guess what, what I've, my mind shift on this topic has, has really been, like, I thought methodology was quite important. And I thought the reason I was failing was because I was using the wrong method. And then I shift, shifted my method and, you know, I was able to have success. I thought it was because of that. But in recent years, having, having moved to Europe and having spent time with a lot of the people around me that have got all these different experiences, that's where I've changed my mindset again. And I've sort of said, actually, it's not the method that matters. It's the student's relationship mm-hmm. to the method. Um, and uh, I think that matters probably more than anything. So I'd probably say it was motivation, discipline, you know, consistency, and and then the student's relationship with that particular method. Yeah. Yeah. So psychology trumps methodology. Essentially. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Beautiful. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to summarize what I'm trying to say Mm. is how the student feels about it um, will depend a lot on how successful they are. Mm. That That is such a good point. I I think I've had a similar 
mindset shift too. You know, I think it's natural. I think especially those of us spend our lives with languages and, you know, study linguistics, things like that. We get really nerdy and yeah. obsessive about methodology because <laughs> it's cool and it's interesting. We want to try all these yeah. different things out. And and I don't think either of us are saying that methodology doesn't matter. It's just no. that it is subservient to mindset and psychology and all these kind of higher level motivational factors. So, um, so going to motivation again, you talked about how that's one of the key things that's going to keep you hopefully on track with with Polish. Are there other things you found to to help other than just, you know, tutoring sessions, scheduling? What other psychological mindset type stuff have you found to be particularly important or effective? Yeah, I I mean it's a, it's a great question. I I think um there's this really there's this interesting idea in language learning which is kind of like um find the things that you really enjoy, right? Find the things you enjoy. I've, I've heard that advice given a lot. Um, but I almost think like sometimes there are things that I don't enjoy, but I do anyway. Yeah. Right. And so like it's it, it sometimes you take a little bit of self-reflection. It's like, oh, actually, do I really enjoy doing this particular type of exercise? Mm-hmm. No, but I kind of know it's good for me. So I do it anyway. And I'll, I'll, I'll just give a, a, a simple example. It's like, I actually, I hate running on a treadmill. <laughs> like I actually hate stationary cardio. This is just, it's a weird example. I don't know anybody who likes it. So if but, you find somebody that. <laughs> well, I don't know, but when I'm in the gym, right. When I'm in the gym and I, and I see people just, I mean, there are people on there, right. That, that, that are spending their half an hour doing, doing their thing. I can't, I can't stand it. Um, but I will spend the same amount of time in the gym actually lifting weights mm-hmm. and it's fine. Like I, for me to be in the gym for an hour and actually just, just, you know, doing deadlifts or squats or whatever the thing is, I don't particularly enjoy that. Um, my, my passion in sport is rock climbing. I, I love rock climbing. I'm, I'm addicted. I'll go every week. I'd go every day if I could, if, I, if it wouldn't injure me. But um, I, I just, I get excited for that. It's the thing I love to do. Lifting weights, I, I don't particularly enjoy it. It's not something that I look forward to, but I do do it. And I do it on a regular basis. Just, I don't know why. It's just in my psychology that, okay, today is gym day and I go to the gym and I lift the weights and I come home and it's never particularly something that I'm thrilled about or really enjoy, but I just do it Um, Mm -hmm. versus running on the, on the treadmill. I won't ever do that, but running outside, I will. Mm -hmm. So like I will go for long distance runs outside and I will lift weights. And I know that those two things are really good for me, but I don't necessarily enjoy them. And so I think sometimes there are things like that. So in language, like now taking that, that idea and relating it to language learning, you know, Duolingo is an interesting example. Students ask me about that all the time, but I, I actually don't like it at all. Like I actually Mm. don't like, Having looking at the app, having the phone like in my eye or whatever, and, and pressing the buttons in the app, I actually really don't enjoy Duolingo, right? Mm. Um, but Anki and flashcards—that's something I will do. Mm. Like, it, even though I don't necessarily enjoy it, it's something I do. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I, if, if I'm bored or I'm sitting around or I'm, you know, you know, in line at, at, at the supermarket, I can pull out my phone and I can do Anki for five minutes. And I will just do it, even though it's not my favorite activity, I'll just do it. So it's kind of like lifting weights for me. It's something that I will do, even though I don't necessarily enjoy it. Um, whereas running on a treadmill, I just cannot. And Duolingo, I just cannot, mm. you know, um, even though other, other t- others talk about it as being this addictive thing that they love. And so right. that my advice is kind of saying like each student is going to be a little bit different like that. Yeah. Find the things that you will do and they can be enjoyable but I almost like, I feel like I want to have this advice for students out there. Even, even if you can't find things that you absolutely love about language learning, just find the things that you will do just because yeah. there's something about your relationship to that thing. It's just not hard for you to get into a habit of doing that. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not hard for me to get into the habit of lifting weights, even though it's something I don't enjoy. And if someone can find something that 
even if it's not they're super passionate, super enjoyable, but they just do it on a regular basis, that can be a really powerful thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think it goes back to this idea of expectations. And if you expect every minute of language learning to be fun, and I do think there's a lot of voices out right. there that are trying to kind of push that message. Even myself, I, I definitely, I think as a countermeasure to people's idea that language learning is dull and dry and it's just memorizing conjugation tables and kind of the school experience so tarnished so many people's relationship to languages. I think a lot of, you know, language bloggers and podcasters, we've tried to swing the pendulum the other way and maybe yes. go too far. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, it's going to be, you know, rainbows and puppies all the time. It's like, no, no, exactly. no, nothing's ever going to be fun all the time. Um, yes. I'm curious with you, with, with the flashcards and Anki and the, and the weightlifting, do you think it's because you think those things are effective? Like, you know, they're going to produce a result for you. And so even though you don't enjoy them in the moment, you enjoy the results of them. And so you put in the time. You think that is the the difference or? Yeah, I think that's very insightful. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great way to, to look at it. And I hadn't even really thought about it that way. But yes, I probably, in my own head, I'm thinking if I do this thing on a regular basis, yeah. I know that at the end, you know, there's going to be a good result. Right. Um, Whereas with Duolingo, I'm, maybe you're thinking this is just a stupid game. It's not going to work and I don't enjoy it. So what? what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Whereas like, whereas like something that I really do enjoy is I, I like, I love speaking. I mean, I think everybody does, right. Speaking a language with a friend, you know, mm -hmm. like that, that can be so motivating and, you know, I'll go catch up with a friend, speak for them for an hour in French and I'll walk away from that motivated to work on my French some more. Right. You know, so those, those, those experiences are, are very enjoyable. I like doing them and I walk away with a lot of sort of motivation to say, Oh, I want next time I catch up with that person, my French is going to be better, you know, whereas with, yeah, like the, the flashcards, it's, it's, it's not the same thing. It's not the same feeling. It's, it's still kind of a boring activity, but like right. exactly like you say, I feel like it will pay off for me in the long run. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, flashcards are a highly controversial Absolutely. issue in, in the language blogosphere. I mean, you wouldn't think to to the random person in the street, they probably wouldn't realize <laughs> how many vitriolic debates there have been about, about these things over the years. I think they can be useful. I, I, I'm the same. I don't really enjoy them, but I do try to do them on a fairly regular basis. It just helps you to add a little bit of a laser focus on a few of the problem areas you have. And Absolutely. even though I'm all about immersion and natural exposure, it's just going to take a lot longer to see those particular words or Chinese characters, whatever they might be in the wild enough times and enough frequency that they'll stick as quickly as if you just, okay, use some space repetition and see them 20 times and in, in two days, you know? So yes. Yeah. Cool. So I want to hear more about your Polish stuff because this is, I think it's such a fascinating kind of Petri dish experiment here of yes, yes. applying all the stuff you've learned in these other language learning adventures in this new thing. So just in these two weeks that you've already been learning the language, are, are there things that have surprised you? Are there specific things about the Polish language that are really interesting to you or uniquely different? Because I've never learned a Slavic language either, so I don't really know much about them. I mean, I, I sort of had the experience going from Spanish to French where I, I was used to say the five vowels you know, R, A, E, O, U, right? The Spanish vowels that we need to have them in every word. And you go into French and all of a sudden you've got the sort of the nasal vowels, the on, the vin, the, the uh, you know, and it's almost and like- no relationship between spelling and pronunciation almost. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so that same sort of experience I feel like is happening so far. Because like, like I said, my focus for these these last little bit has just been straight away on, on pronunciation. pronunciation. It's kind of like, yeah. how, are these, how are these sounds made? What are the consonants like? What are the- vowels like what is the emphasis like mm -hmm. you know these sorts of things so that's what i've focused on so far and then yeah and then having you know an alphabet which is a little bit different to 
you know, the one that I've seen so far as well. They've got a few extra characters there. Mm-hmm. And so it's just... They're a, like just, diacritic marks, right? On the... Yeah, yes. On, on things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's, uh, it's not Cyrillic. It's Latin. Latin yeah. Software, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I will need to... Maybe it's too fresh for me to even really give any, <laughs> give any insights. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, Maybe in 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 three months' time, I might be able to give some some insights and say, okay, okay, now that now that I've spent some some time with this language, now we'll I have feel, to update part two. Yeah, yeah. potentially. <laughs> where, where is Andrew now? Yeah, yeah. So shifting gears a little bit now, more put your teacher hat on now. So mm-hmm. specifically with with Spanish. So you've worked with lots of learners by this point. I guess we should just say I haven't I haven't said it yet in the podcast. So it's it's real fast. Spanish is your yes. is your website. And you guys have courses, you've got podcasts, you've got all, all sorts of stuff. So definitely check it out. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes. With new Spanish learners, which I'm consider myself one, even though I've dabbled in it for years, I, I've never really fully gone all in on it yet. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see English speakers make when they're learning Spanish? Yeah. Okay. I just released a video on YouTube about this like yesterday, basically. So probably uh, I think for yeah, students that are new to language learning, and and like we've talked about pronunciation quite a lot so far. So probably one of the, the things that I just see so commonly with um, new learners is introducing the schwa from English. So you know the schwa, right? right? Yeah. So the upside down this, e, yeah. The upside down e, right? Yeah. So this is in the international phonetic alphabet. It's sound represented by upside down e, and it is literally the most common vowel in English, and mm-hmm. nobody knows what it is, right? Like <laughs> if, if, you, if you're not an experienced language, like you say, a language nerd, you're like, okay, what's a schwa? And um, yeah, I put it on my YouTube channel yesterday. And a few people went, oh wow, the schwa, the schwa. Like so now, people are kind of like, at least the, the people that are following um, our work at Real Fast Spanish have kind of like now. I want them to be aware of this thing. Mm-hmm. So whenever we have an unstressed syllable in English. Um, we generally introduce the schwa. And um, so a couple of examples from the video. Yesterday I talked about the word about. Mm-hmm. Um, so while there is an A at the start of that word, you know, we don't say A about or about, we go uh. About, yep. About, right? We go yep. about, right? So that so even though somewhere else in the language where we might say cat or hat or sat, the A in those words is very different to the A at the start of Mm-hmm. about and again the reason we go uh is because the stress is on the bout or the stress is on the again and so when we have the stress on a different syllable often in english the one that's not stressed will have a schwa in it and so because of that when you go to spanish like natives are like english natives are so used to it and they're so conditioned to hear the schwa with like an a that like and the word i gave was the word to love in spanish amar right amar and what they'll do is they'll go amar Amar, uh, yes. Right? right? Mm-hmm. And the, like like about or again, and it'll be an uh, like again, sometimes, because students can't even hear it sometimes. They're so used to it, right? And right. I almost have to exaggerate it. It's instead of uh, like uh, about, about, right? Amar, amar, right? It's got to be a, amar, right? Yeah. Amar. We've got to get that that solid, that, that, that those two A's have to be as consistent as possible. And so you almost have to learn from scratch again how to, create emphasis in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And the example I gave in the video was like, take any word um, and just say each syllable with almost equal weight, forget emphasis to start with. This is the technique I really like to share with students to say, okay, we'll take this word to love and we'll just go a mar, a mar, and just kept the syllables as consistent as possible. And then like to emphasize it just a little bit louder, just a little bit longer, just a little mm-hmm. bit more on the mar. So instead of a mar, just a mar. 
right? Mm. And it's almost that subtle. It's extremely subtle. But but in English, we would just go amar. We would just we'd put a schwa on that on that start, and then yeah. that's how we would get the stress on the other syllable. But in Spanish, we can't do that. We've got to kind of do it with a little volume and a little length. But, yeah. but like not. And another example might be the word for food, comida, comida. And you know the co at the start of that is a lot like the word command in English. So you know command, and there's that schwa again. Mm-hmm. Command. We go k command, but we want to go go. We don't want to go k k comida, right? Which is what I hear a lot. Yeah. Right? Students going comida because they're used to something like command. And so right. what I'll slow right down, get each of those syllables as accurately as possible. Go me da go me da, and then just a little bit more on the me. Go me da. Comida, and then you can mm-hmm. sort of put it together. La comida, la comida, right? And not k, but co. We still got that mm. that o type sound. So, without a doubt, that is probably the number one mistake that I hear from almost every student. I even hear from myself, right? Like even in my own podcasts, and you know, when I've been speaking Spanish and I'm recording myself for YouTube, and I'll even hear myself just slightly drop a, sh- a schwa in from time mm-hmm. to time. Some of those old habits coming back, and so, so I think deep. we. Yeah. yeah, it's so deep. And and so like I think that all students can work on this beginner, intermediate, advanced, mm-hmm. trying to get the the schwas. If English is your first language, I'm sure not everybody listening to the podcast has English as their first language. But yeah, um, if you're coming from another, you know, romance language, you probably won't have this problem. But if English right. is your first language, it's or Japanese. A, or Japanese. I, a lot of Japanese learners have a really well, at least with pronunciation, when they come to Spanish, they have a little bit of a leg up because they also only have pure vowels in Japanese. It's yes, a, right. So it's, it's a little closer grammar and everything else. That's a whole other story, but yeah, at least pronunciation wise, they have a little leg up with that kind of mispronunciation of, of us anglicizing Spanish. Mm-hmm. And this might be hard to say, but is this a matter of, of them being completely misunderstood or is it just kind of hard? Is it like a thick accent in English where you can understand what they're saying, but just takes a little extra attention to understand it? Or is it a matter of it's incomprehensible to a native Spanish speaker? Yeah, it can significantly change the meaning of the word. That's why I think it's really important. So um, uh, uh, several years ago, I was like probably on that trip when I was really struggling. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was in Madrid and I walked into a store and you know the churros, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. donuts, the churros. Um, they have a thicker version, which is spelled P-O-R-R-A-S. Borras. Borras. Right? Borras. Right? It's a thicker version of the, of the churros. So um, I walked in there and I said I wanted some borras. Right. So I've introduced a schwa, mm-hmm. right? So it almost sounds like the word porous in English, you know, the mm-hmm. stone is porous or something. I've gone rus, I've gone porous. Now the schwa, if you look at a vowel chart, it occurs right in the middle of a Spanish O, a Spanish E, and a Spanish A. So O, E, and A. It's right in the middle of those three vowels. It, 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 it isn't closer to any, it's, if it is closer to anything, it is an A, but mm. a native can still hear an E or an O. And the word P-O-R-R-O-S in Spanish, porros, porros, um, means joint, like marijuana. And, oh. Right? And, and puros, puros, P-U-R-O-S, is a cigar. And so when I'm hearing, like, Spanish uh, students try to say, you know, myself included, again, I'm happy to look in the mirror here, right, sometimes with my own mistakes, but porras, if you say porros, that could be heard by a native as P-O-R-R-O-S. P-O-R-R-E-S, right? Mm. Um, or in, in some cases, if you don't even quite get the first one, right, it could be P-U-R-O-S. So um, <laughs> the, guy, the guy even said to me, he said, I'm sorry, we don't sell marijuana here. We don't here. sell those here. 
exactly, exactly. You know, and uh, I, I just I remember oh head in hand moment, just thinking oh what did you do? You know, and then and then I thought yeah that's that's just the porous right that the sound was a very Englishy sound. I've introduced it so. Yeah. Um, Students will often ask me about, say, the rolling R, the you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, is it you know, perro versus perro? You know, is that critical? And I actually have a friend from the Dominican Republic that has a genetic birth defect. Uh, it's his first language, but he cannot roll his R's, yet he is understood perfectly mm. by his friends. And so um, in, in like your question came back to, is, is this going to change the meaning? Is it going to cause um, miscommunications? I think the schwa will. And that's why I often tell students that vowels are more important than consonants. Mm. If you get a consonant slightly wrong, it tends to not change the meaning of the word so much. And so that's why I sometimes say like with there is a special, there's a Spanish B that's kind of unique um, to Spanish. There's a Spanish D, which is very similar to the TH at the end of breathe. In English, it's kind of almost like a it's a it's a um a voiced what are they called the fricative fricative thank you yeah the voice fricative of, of, of breathe right will often be on a d at the end but if you say the d from English right if you say like the word for um, finger is dedo dedo it should be a d like the English and then a dedo right that's dedo. what it should be but if you, yeah exactly but if you say dedo with a d no native will think oh what on earth is this person saying like it will sound, it will still sound very clear mm-hmm. because. They're, you know, it's an allophone. It's still, it's still, they still associate the D sound with a D. Whereas like when we introduce the schwa, you could end up giving the native an O, an E or an A, mm. and that will cause a lot of confusion. It will, it can significantly change the word, but getting a, a B wrong or a D wrong or, you know, a rolling R wrong, which is the, the, the sounds that students are always interested in. They're the ones mm-hmm. they always ask me about. They always say, oh, am I rolling my R's right? Am I getting this right? Am I getting right that? I'm actually saying, no, we're really good. The, the schwa is the problem. That is yeah. so interesting. Yeah, and I, and I love it too because there's kind of a eighty twenty rule here, where when you're especially starting out, I mean, already you're saying start pronunciation, so that's yes. already like limiting a lot of the focus for the overwhelmed beginner. So yes, focus on pronunciation, and then even within pronunciation, focus on just the vowels first, and focusing even further, just eliminate the schwa. Eliminate <laughs> the schwa. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like if you want to talk about like ninety percent of the errors that I hear, ninety five percent of the mm. errors I hear from students, it's it's the schwa, right? So if mm. you can get rid of that. Get your vowels as accurate as you can. A, E, E, O, U. If you get those right in all of your words, you'll be understood by any Spanish native. They'll they'll, they'll understand you. Um, like you say, you know, this is different. Um, one of my really good Spanish friends, she loves to point out the difference between accent and pronunciation. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you have a foreign accent, right? I can tell you're not a native, but I can understand everything that's coming out of your mouth versus pronunciation, which might be like the difference between porros and porras, you know, like porros. That's a pronunciation error. I, I haven't got the word. I haven't got my sounds close enough for a native to understand it. You know, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if I say porros, porras, maybe it doesn't sound exactly like a native, but it's still very clear. They still mm-hmm. know exactly what the word is. A little bit of a tangent, but okay. there was a study they did on Japanese learners of English. And they mm-hmm. they mapped, because as a lot of people know, they, they don't have R and L distinctions yes. in Japanese. Yes. It's really not really an R or an L. It's, a, it's more of a, it's a flapped sound. But the, the reason I bring it up is just that they did the study and they found that the reason they can't distinguish it is because, well, they just don't have those sounds. But as they get better and better in English, their pronunciation of the two start to kind of coalesce into mm-hmm. a distinguishable R and an L. But what I found fascinating reading that study is even amongst native speakers of English, nobody's R or L is exactly the same. If you look like on a, a phonetic chart of where all the things are happening, it's approximate. And to your point about the difference between accent and pronunciation, there's just, it just has to be between the lines. Like it doesn't yes. have to be, because there is no perfect, there is no exact. 
It just has to be close enough that a native speaker can go, okay, it's that and not this other thing. Related back to just what we're talking about, like with the, the word again or about, right? Mm-hmm. But the way I say that with my Australian accent, the way you say it with, right. Right, with your, your um, American accent, it's going to be slightly different. But to both of us, it's very clear. But if someone came in and they said a guy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're like, they're putting it together, you know, like someone learning English, they say, oh, I, I did a guy. And like both of us are going to go, it's just not close enough, is it? it right. It's just, right. We're going it's to not go over the net. Yeah, it's not over the net. Exactly. So even though, again, and an American again and a British again are going to be slightly different sounds, Mm -hmm. they're all going to be within a ballpark that for an English native would just go, oh, I know exactly what that word is. Quick story, I got a friend from um, France that that was in um, Heathrow and um, he he told me this story. He went up to the the lady at the counter who's looking for gate four and he said it really with his thick, you know, French and he said, gat four, gat four. And it was enough for that, like it was, it was, Far enough away that the person couldn't understand what what he was saying. Right. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't help you. And he, no, he thought got full, got full. To him, it was obvious. Right. Yeah, him, was, this? yeah, yeah. Right. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying G A T E F O U R, right? With yeah. the French accent. Yeah. And um, having spent a lot of time with this, one of my really good friends, like I, to me, it's really clear he's saying gate four. But you know, the gut is just not close enough to gate, and the four is not close enough to four. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. For, for the the person looking back at him, just I'm sorry, I, I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, but he had to walk away and just rely yeah. on the signs. But that that's an example of where yeah, the pronunciation is just off enough that a native won't get it. Uh, an example I heard recently I really liked was uh, also a French speaker was talking about sick eyes, <laughs> okay. sick eyes. Uh-huh. Now is it is it your eyes are sick? Yes. Or is, is it is there ice that's thick? Right. Sick eyes. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Not over the net. Now how they said thick ice right. probably close enough where you're like, okay, it, I hear the accent. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you're not a native English speaker, but I understand what you're saying. It's over the exactly. net. Exactly. Yeah, it's that's yeah, it's that that critical shift that changes from do I not understand this person at all? We're like, oh yeah, I hear they have a foreign accent, but I understand exactly what they're saying. Yeah. But even to your point about like Australian American accents, I find it fascinating that even within different dialects of a language as they continue to diverge over time, there does come a point where even amongst quote unquote native English speakers of different dialects, we get certain ones that they get just to the other side of that line for certain people where- Oh, 100%. It's an interesting point, right? Because listening comprehension is probably a a whole topic we could talk about. But, you know, I love to give this example of, of students that sometimes they try to listen to say- Spanish, you know, I like to give this dinner party analogy where you sort of, you, you, we could take an American, like in English, for example, we could take an American, Australian, someone from England, someone from South Africa, someone from New Zealand, and we could put them around um, a dinner table, we could have a dinner party, and all of us could have a conversation. We could understand one another, we could laugh, we could tell jokes. There may be the odd word that comes up, like, you know, the, the where you put your, your groceries at the back of the car in the United States, that's right. the trunk. In right. Australia, it's the boot, right? So those kind of things, um, exactly the same thing will happen in the Spanish-speaking world where you could take someone from Colombia, from Argentina, from Mexico, from Spain, or you could put them all around a dinner table. They would understand each other perfectly fine. They'd be able to communicate. But every now and then, there will be a word that comes up that they don't understand. But then, like English, you know, maybe there are still a few accents, maybe Cuba, maybe the Dominican Republic are a couple of good examples, like for us with Irish and Scottish, where, yeah, it, it's far enough away from mm. the sort of the standard dialect that natives will still be a bit confused. And so sometimes I like to tell students that, you know, if you are struggling with listening comprehension, you know, is it because the person you're speaking with has a particularly thick accent? You know, is it like the Scottish situation? Mm. Um, or is 
is it that, yeah, you don't know enough vocabulary and grammar yet to understand mm. this person. And so there, there is, but personally, I've had a shift in my own journey where I like, I used to think that anytime I didn't understand a Spanish native, that it was 100% my fault. And now with lots of experience and having hours of, of conversations where I've understood 100% of what my friends are saying, I had this experience in Barcelona, I think it was a couple of years ago, where a guy tapped me on the shoulder and he said something to me in Spanish. I didn't understand a word of it. It was a really thick accent that I was really unfamiliar with. I wasn't sure where he was from. It could have been Andalusia, but like I've got friends from that part of, the, of Spain mm. that, that, that I've spoken with and understood. So he just said something to me in Spanish, couldn't understand it. I asked him to repeat it, couldn't understand it. And then I just apologized. I said Spanish is my first language. You know, but I walked away from that. I think 10 years ago, I would have walked away and said, oh, I suck. My Spanish sucks. I'm a loser. You know, I'm, I'm failing again. But in this particular instance, I walked away and I thought about it like listening to a really thick Irish or Scottish accent. I thought there was something unique about this particular mm-hmm. individual that caused me to not understand it. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to say to someone, hey, you're going to go live in Scotland for a year, you're going to marry someone from Scotland, you know, like if you actually go and spend time with natives from Scotland that have thick accents, you know, well, they think anymore. It's it won't, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like my grandmother was from Scotland. So, yeah, I used to listen to it as a child. But, you know, what's a great day today? You know, like, you know, it's a great day today. And mm-hmm. like that shift for a lot of people can be too much. Right? You know, a great day today. You know, like mm-hmm. you're thinking, oh, that's not like day. You know, it's not like great. It's too different. But having heard it for many years, you're like, oh, okay, I know what those words are. Right. And so the same thing needs to happen um, if you're going to shift between Spanish dialects. Right. Earlier, the word difficult came up and, I think we both kind of had a, a wink about it because I, I think a lot of yeah. people will say that about languages or, or dialects, like, oh, that's a difficult language. It's a difficult dialect. Right. Um, it's thick. It's a thick accent, but it's probably my descriptive linguist in me, but I'm always like, well, no, it's just it's just different. It's unfamiliar it's different. to you. Yes. But a person from that speech community would not say it's a difficult dialect or thick accent. That's their normal. I would have the thick accent. My favorite thing is people say, I don't have an accent. I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> Every single human has an accent. It's just you're used to your accent. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. It's a really good point because for people in Scotland, it's not a problem, right? Like they understand each other. It's, it's just it's right. just natural, natural and normal. So, We're the weirdos. Yeah. We're speaking weird. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So after pronunciation, which I 100% agree that should be foundational and getting out our schwas and, and pronouncing <laughs> these pure, beautiful Spanish vowels. Um, yes. Are there other mistakes you see often see in terms of no, it can be interference mistakes or it could be approach mistakes. It could be methodology mistakes. What do you see us gringos doing wrong that you would recommend we, we change course on? <laughs> Two answers come to my mind with that question is it's like specific things I see with Spanish versus um, things that could potentially apply to any language. So, let's do both. Um, let's do, let's do, let's both. do option one first, then we'll go to option two. Okay. Okay. O- option one first for Spanish might be something like prepositions there are certain structures in language learning which i find quite fascinating because you hear this advice a lot which is like get a lot of comprehensible input you know immerse yourself in the language get good quality input and and there are certain structures in spanish prepositions are a good example and like the phrase lo que do you know that phrase lo que i've heard it you heard that one right so that one in particular i think is a fascinating phrase for me as like someone thinking about language learning with lo que it's actually the, like if we look at um, engrams, like pairings of words that occur frequently in the language, that two-word combination is the eighth most common pair in the entire language. Wow. So, it, you know, like in English, it's like to the, on the, you know, mm-hmm. like those kind of, you know, they appear in almost every sentence. One of the is a really common three-gram in English. You know, lo que can appear like, it, it will it'll be almost everything. It'll be in every text. It'll be in every, you know, video, YouTube video. Like people would say this two-word phrase a lot. yet. Even advanced students I see sometimes have been learning language for five to 10 years, haven't mastered how to use this two-word phrase. 
Mm. And I find it, I find it quite fascinating in my own head as it's kind of like when giving a language learning advice to people is it's kind of like, you know, comprehensible input. Well, I've seen students that like love the idea of just getting a lot of native content in their regular practice and they're watching Netflix and they're reading a lot. And, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, you would have been exposed to this two word phrase literally thousands of times, you know, mm. if you've been doing it on a regular basis, you still can't use it in a conversation. So Hmm. Sometimes I really like to see like certain structures, students just practicing them in isolation yeah. just so they can, they can get used to them. And, you know, a good example of that you like might be something like some conjunctions, those kind of things and prepositions, which, is, which is, again, it just seems to be like, even with years of experience, people can be very fluent that these common errors will just come up and yeah. it may have to do with the way the brain processes languages. I'll give a couple more examples just from Spanish. That I see a lot. The word about in Spanish is sobre. Right, mm -hmm. sobre. And it works really well after nouns, right? So I have a book about, tengo un libro sobre. I have information about, tengo información sobre. So it works really well after nouns, but after verbs, it doesn't work so well, you know? So talk about, think about, dream about, right? Like those combinations from English will not translate well. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, like, so dream about is soñar con, soñar con. So when we dream so in with, Spanish, we, we dream with, yeah, yeah. Dream so so with, like, yeah. I, yeah. So I dreamt about my homework last night. Anoche soñé con mi tarea, right? So like, mm. I dreamt with my homework last mm -hmm. night. You know that sort of thing. That's a really really common error, sort of like on, on a Spanish level that I sort of see. And I know maybe some languages out there don't even have prepositions, so that's why right. I can't sort of necessarily talk about every language um, with with that particular idea. But what I like to tell students with Spanish is it can be really useful to learn certain words with pairings. Right. And, and like we often learn that, you know, with Spanish, that masculine um, and feminine nouns, you know, el, coche, la, calle, la, mm. ciudad. So we've got to learn that certain nouns are masculine and feminine. I often like to tell students, learn about certain verbs and the prepositions that go with those verbs. So right. every time you, you see soñar, think about the fact that con's going with it. Right. Because intuitively... It often doesn't come. So, like, the student will know soñar. They've been telling the language for years, you know, and they'll just go soñar sobre. Like, they'll just do it. Yeah. Like, that, that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah, they'll translate in their head um, unless they've specifically practiced right. that structure. And it's the same thing with lo que. I see it so often. Mm. So, that that sort of fascinates me. And, and so, I sometimes think that's where sometimes it really does help, even with lots of input, to mm. actually have some time to sit down and maybe focus on particular structures. Yeah, look, I've been thinking about it for years, you know, and often we like to look at the way children learn as sort of like to give us evidence of, of the best way to learn as adults. Some people might say that, oh, well, children learn really well because they do get a lot of input, you know, and then sometimes in my head I think, well, actually, children make mistakes too and they get corrected, they Yep. you know, so yep. they, will, they will put something, you know, in order that's like in an order that it's not supposed to be and the, and the parent will go, no, 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 it's like this. I think that's still a valuable part of the process. And I think sometimes yeah. that gets forgotten because yeah. you know, maybe that maybe the first 24 months of life, like a child won't, all they're getting is input. Right. But at some point when they're three and four, they will start to use the language and they will make mistakes and they right. will get feedback. Right. And so I think. And adults make the same mistakes. This is what's super fascinating to me is right. they'll make the same predictable, logical mistakes because they'll see a pattern and then they over apply it or they'll make some leap. And they do it in the same order. That's what fascinates me is, yeah. you know, a 35-year-old learning Spanish will make the, most of the same mistakes that a three-year-old native speaker makes almost in the same order in a predictable way. It just, it, it yeah. blows yeah. my mind. And, 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 maybe, and maybe that's a really good example for loque. Maybe like a three-year-old will do that as well. You know, and so there's something just innate to that structure that 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 maybe doesn't sit well in the human mind, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just it's just a natural part of the language um, learning process. 
Um, but like another really good example, I'm just has come to mind is is thanks for thanks for. So like students often get taught with boredom butter, right? Mm. That they're, they're both translate to for, and so sometimes when I ask a student how do you say thanks for, they'll go gracias butter, but it's always gracias por, and I like to mm-hmm. tell students just gracias por, gracias por, Learn gracias that chunk. por. Yeah. Learn that chunk, say it a thousand times, get yeah. used to it so that it's really the only option. I'd be curious to know if a child says gracias para at any stage. I would be really curious. That would be that interesting. Happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think this is a, a kind of a different beast because those mistakes are translation mistakes. That's, you know, that's native, native language interference problems, right, right. which obviously a child doesn't have because they don't have yeah. a other language that's interfering, which I do think that's an, an important part of why children... I don't think they're better language learners. I think I, we could argue about this all day. I don't think they're better necessarily, but that is one advantage they have because they don't have any interference. They're starting yes. from not a blank slate because they have instincts and there are pre-wired language learning parts of their brain that are kind of just <laughs> waiting to be you know put into action. They don't have 25 years or 30 years of, of another no. language and its structures right. floating around in your head. For, or the for, pronunciation, for you know, the schwa's and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But to your point, and people do like to say, okay, children learn like this, they get fluent. So let's just mirror exactly what they do. And I I don't think that's necessarily a good idea because we are not children. Yes. We right. We do it, we have all this apparatus up here, all all these mm-hmm. advantages as adults that would be a shame to kind of just put those on the side and just sit and drool and and eat and poop for <laughs> two years. Like it's one way to go, I guess. I just remember the second part of your question. Yes, because I, I, I don't want to move on before before forgetting about it. So the, the first part was Spanish specific, and, and like I said, it was, it was prepositions, conjunctions, you know, certain things that just seem to be constantly problems that the students tend to have. Um, but then in general, something like if I'm thinking about general language learning advice, like like I like to sometimes think about what are the principles of language learning, and so what is it? This should apply, I think, for any language, any student of any ability. I kind of like to think how how far back to the grassroots of principles can I think. And I think for me, there are two real principles of language learning in, in my head, which is um, readiness and readiness to learn. So like if a student is stressed or overwhelmed or tired or frustrated, you know, it's been a long day. I, I think it's very difficult to learn, you know, when you're in a state like that. And so like trying to find ways to sort of improve your readiness to learn, your readiness to take on new information, that can just be getting a good night's sleep. And I know when you came on my podcast, we talked about diet and all these sorts of things, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, um, looking after yourself can improve your readiness um, to to take on new information. So I think that's something that's universally true, every student, every ability. And then um, the other one is high quality practice, you know, Mm. so, so trying to, you know, you know, the idea of deliberate practice, um, I think that that's, that's really, um, really important. And in my own experience, like I said, right at the very start of those first two years, I spent a lot of time, what I would say, getting low quality practice, mm-hmm. you know, and that might just be turning on a podcast or a Spanish radio. And I used to drive to work and I would listen to it for half an hour at a time, but it was kind of incomprehensible. You know, it, was, it, was, right. it wasn't that ability and I'm multitasking, you know, right. so I'm driving. It's passive. Yep. It's passive, you know, and the Spanish is going. And I remember just, months went by and my abilities weren't improving and I felt like I was doing hours of work. Mm-hmm. That's the other interesting thing. Oh, I've spent six months working really hard on my Spanish and you know, my ability, my listening comprehension hasn't gotten any better, hasn't improved. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where I would kind of describe that as low quality practice. And I think yeah. high quality practice um, is something that, again, applies to every student of every ability. And what I would call a mistake that I see a lot with students is just doing a lot of low quality practice. And I sometimes think about both things. I sort of say, you know, rather than a long day of work, you know, trying to get in 
some low quality breaks at the end of the day when you're in a state when you're tired and you're exhausted and, you know maybe it's better just to sit down on netflix and actually just watch an episode of your favorite sitcom in your first language and just relax and go to bed you know what i mean and try to prepare yourself for the next day so you recover you know just try to make it so that your next session you're feeling better for it and so i think i see i see that a lot as well i think mm. it's, it's students just potentially going into their language learning situation not with a particularly high readiness to sort of take on new information and then also you know, doing those hours of potentially low quality learning. And I'll give you another example from my own experience as well. I remember several years ago, I went to a language exchange evening here in the city where I was living because I thought, right, I want to go there and I want to go and practice my French. And, you know, you put the name tags on with the languages you speak and I put on, you know, pr proudly I put on my English and my Spanish and my French. And I got there and like, it was really interesting. The, the, the bar was full of Spanish natives. I couldn't believe how many, how many Spanish speakers were there. I wanted to go practice my French. And uh, they saw my English. And that night, I think I spent four hours introducing myself and saying what I did, you know. And so I, I used Spanish for four hours, but I'd said the same thing that I'd said a hundred times before, right. you know, uh, where are you from? I'm from Australia. What do you do? Okay, yeah. I'm a teacher, you know. And I, so I'd spent four hours using my language that night, but I would kind of consider it low quality practice because I didn't improve. Didn't I didn't grow. get better. Yeah. I didn't yeah. grow. And so I think, um, yeah, I think every student out there, I, I think I, I see this a lot. Students say, I practice speaking every day. You know, I, I find half an hour every day. Are those quality sessions or are those kind of like, you know, the, the low quality sessions where it's like, you're not actually growing as a result of that session. You're just kind of using the things you've already managed to acquire over the years and right. you're just using them again and again. Um, and so I think, it, it, yeah, one thing I would love to see, or I, like the advice I would give is just try to do what you can to make sure every session results in some sort of growth and, and structuring the session in such a way that, yeah. that you can grow from that session. On that note, what are some ways people can make those speaking sessions, for example, if somebody is like working with a tutor, how can they make that more deliberate practice? How can they make it more structured? How can they make sure they're not just repeating those, you know, set yeah, phrases think, and things yeah, they already know? Yeah, set phrases they already know really well. Yeah. So I, I think having some intention going in there with a goal. You know, like today I'm going to practice using loke. You know, I'm going to try and use that in a, in, a, in a sentence. I'm going to practice using a preposition that I haven't used before, you know, or like my friend who, who, who takes the notes in his notebook, it's kind of like, okay, I learned these five words yesterday. I'm going to go into this next 20 minute conversation. I'm going to try to use those five words. And that way, you know, you don't fall back onto some of the things you've always done in the past. And I, and I know really um, popular topic in the language learning world is this intermediate plateau. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think the plateau exists for a very good reason. And, and that is that students sort of, as a beginner, it's almost like as a beginner, everything you do is high quality practice. It's almost hard not to get high quality practice when you're a beginner, because it's kind of like every new thing is new. You're learning something new, you're taking mm -hmm. it on board and you're excited. And like, like with my Polish at the moment, I'm like, I just want to learn everything there is to know about this language. I'm really excited. But then you get to a point where you can just sort of explain yourself in a roundabout way you may not know the word for my computer you might want to say my computer is not working and you're like okay i don't know how to say my computer is not working and instead so you just say esto no bueno you know like a student yeah. would just say right this thing no bueno you know like and they'll just they'll use this phrase that they've used a million times before right. and they're understood and they're understood and yeah and the natives yeah. say, oh, i know exactly what you mean it's a right. problem with balls over the net so they're like i'm yes, good right <laughs> i'm good and, and and then they'll just go esto no, no bueno and they'll just mm. do that over and over and it's kind of like well i use my spanish for 20 minutes today but did you grow as a result of that yeah. and i think that's where those plateaus um come from is just the student sort of shifts the way they're uh, tackling the language um mm -hmm. more from a maybe a growth perspective, which is very easy in, in, in at the beginning and, and then into more of, more of just a sort of a maintenance, I guess maybe a maintenance strategy. Right. You get comfortable. 
you get comfortable and you just use it and it's just sort of a maintenance thing and but you're not growing but it makes sense because growth by definition is uncomfortable you know well yeah yeah it's not uncomfortable you're not growing probably so yeah one thing i found useful is and as much as i don't like textbook learning usually combining kind of a textbook syllabus where you have all these different topics or, or things planned out with a more natural organic tutoring session with a native speaker can be really powerful i find because then you have a little bit of that structure you know like okay i'm gonna talk about this today this the next time instead of just reverting back to that same self-intro that you've done a gazillion times yeah. also working with the same tutor for a long period of time instead of jumping from person to person to person stick with one person that you've already done your intro they know it you know yeah yeah um i've listened to um, a lot of your podcasts john i remember you speaking about something in, in a recent podcast where you sort of said that finding the right tutor or the right language exchange can be kind of like finding a friend or a or a you know a romantic partner right it's like dating. sometimes you, yep. it's like dating like like sometimes like trying i talking trying one tutor or whatever it doesn't necessarily result in a person that you connect with or you know, that you can grow with over time. But yeah, if you can find someone that right. will constantly push you right. to grow and 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 stretch you and 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 push you out of your comfort zone, that's like a diamond, you know, it's just you've got to hold For on sure. to that. But to your what you're just saying, I mean, it is true. You're gonna have to go through probably six, seven, eight, maybe a dozen people before you find that one that yes. you're gonna to want to. I'm putting air quotes here, Mary, or <laughs> <laughs> at least as a tutor. Uh, yeah. now I do know a lot of people I have met significant others through language exchange apps and things. So it can happen. Okay. So kind of just uh, to wrap up then, what would be one thing if somebody is brand new to Spanish specifically or any language in general, what's one thing that they should do today if they want to get started in a language? Maybe they have the same story. I'm not good at languages. I I failed Spanish in in high school or whatever. At this point, they don't believe they can do it. They think there's something wrong with them. What would you tell this person to kind of get them over that psychological hurdle and get some progress under their belt. What I sort of talked about before is like, if you've got the the tools to speak your first language, you've got the tools to speak your second language. But I think sometimes like you want to experience it, right? Because that's happened for me is like, I didn't really believe I could do it until I had a, a good moment. And, um, you know, confidence is a topic that comes up quite a lot with students in our, in our Spanish school. And I, one of the most strange things that I've sort of experienced working with hundreds of students over the years is that confidence and ability can be very um, disconnected you know, I've seen students with very high abilities and very low confidence. I've seen students with very low abilities and very high confidence. Um, and, and I actually think that that confidence is something that comes from self-reflection. I, I remember I saw a footballer um, many years ago, one of my idols, uh, Australian rules football. Um, he was being interviewed. He's one of these kind of players that always performs in a big game, like, you know, the final year he will perform, have his best game of the year. And it's like, how can he constantly have his best game when the stakes are the highest? Mm. And um, he, I listened to an interview and I almost took notes as I was listening to him speak. The, the, uh, the person said, where does confidence come from? And he said, confidence, his definition of confidence was confidence is the memory of past success. Mm. Um, that was, that was his, his thing. And he even said like visualization, I can visualize success in my own mind and draw confidence from that. So he can either have success in his past or he can visualize success and draw confidence from it, which is an unbelievable skill. Um, But it's a skill I believe everybody can learn. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I've seen quite often is like, you know, maybe two different students could go into a bar in Spain or whatever and say, you know, hola, que tal? Um, Quiero una tortilla, por favor. You know, and then the person responds and, and then they mess up the next sentence and then, and then oh, oh, no, that was a mess. Oh, let's change to English. Oh, thank you. I'll pay for that. Okay, let's walk mm-hmm. away. Once, even we could have two students, identical interactions where the same mistakes were made, the same, you know, 
um, listing comprehension mistakes were made, you know, they didn't understand what's coming back at them. One could walk away and say, you know what? I ordered the tortilla. You know, mm-hmm. he understood the question. You know, I walked away. That was a great interaction. Like that was like mm-hmm. two ticks. Like things are going really <laughs> well. Like I'm, I'm on the journey. Mm-hmm. Another one could walk away and just said like, I couldn't understand what was coming back. It's just like my Spanish sucks. I'm never going to do, you know, so it's almost like two identical interactions. The way students feel about those yeah. events yeah. can affect their own confidence level. So for someone who doesn't feel like they've got the ability to improve in language learning, what I would love for them to try to experience as early as possible, some sort of win, some sort of early mm-hmm. win. They say, I'm going to go into this conversation. I'm going to set the bar really low. I'm just going to say my name, where I'm from, you know, how are you? And then try to get those things out. And if, if it doesn't work out, if it's a mistake, if things don't go well, okay, try to put it behind you, do it again. Right. And then the next time go in, Try and get the basics right. Hi, how? Hola, qué tal? Me llamo Andrew. You know, trying to get some of those mm-hmm. basics, and then and then reflect on that and think, you know what? That went really well, right? Try to focus on the things that went well as opposed to things that that that, that didn't go well, and think, you know what? I am doing this. I am making progress, mm-hmm. and even You're showing the, the start, up. Yeah, I'm showing like, up. That's really think, probably the most yeah. basic. You know, that is winning. Like you showed up, you had a, you opened your mouth, and you tried to make Spanish, right? Like, yeah, you tried to make Spanish, and you did. Like yeah. it happened, you know, and even though it wasn't, you know, it's not, you're not sea level yet, you know, you, you've, yeah. you've been able to just get some basics out there. Try to draw some confidence on the fact that you did get some basics out there. The native understood it and that basic interaction went well. I think that then can snowball and build. The mental game, again, we could come back to psychology in this conversation because <laughs> I think it's, it's so important and it's yeah. so often, I think, either ignored or downplayed again, because people want to focus on the apps, the methods, the yes. the language itself, you know, for good reason. Like that is ultimately what, you know, the we're doing here, right? We want to be able to communicate in, in Spanish or whatever the language is. But mm-hmm. to get to that place and to put in that consistent practice, so often the barrier isn't conjugation or memorization. It's the psychological stories we have and the cognitive distortions that get in our own way. That's right. It's it's it's, it's believing you can do it and then having the motivation to keep moving forward. Awesome. Well, Andrew, I'm sure we could talk about this for many, many more hours, but I know you have other things to do in your life than just yeah, of course. chat with, with some gringo over on the other side of the world. <laughs> um, I will put everything we talked about in the show notes. Again, it's realfastspanish.com. Highly recommend you checking it out. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. Let us know how your, your Polish adventure goes. I will. Thanks so much, John. It was, it was a pleasure speaking with you pleasure. again. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Language Mastery Show. Again, you can find show notes at languagemastery.com forward slash show. Before you continue on with your day, take a quick moment to choose one small tip or takeaway from today's episode to apply in your life. Listening to podcasts is a great first step, but the real magic only happens when you translate information into action. Also, if you want to help keep this show going, there are three key things you can do to help. Number one, Leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. Number two, join my free newsletter called Language Mastery Monday, in which you get weekly tips, tools, and resources for building an effective language immersion environment anywhere in the world. And number three, if you're learning Japanese or Mandarin Chinese, check out my detailed immersion guides called Master Japanese and Master Mandarin. Both provide step-by-step instructions for how to immerse yourself in Japanese or Chinese right where you are. 
Learn more at JapaneseMastery.com and ChineseMastery.com. And you can use the code SHOW, that's S-H-O-W, to get 25% off either guide. All right, we'll see you next week for another episode of the Language Mastery Show. Until then, happy learning.